This is Our American Story, and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests. Folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times bestselling author. Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. I think you need to take a run. <laughs> well, Dean, I have a beer, yeah. I have a beer and run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and what are the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today? I was born in Los Angeles. So California, born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister, uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school. And my dad was working two jobs, so I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. And she said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention? I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild. And I just remember sitting there in that classroom just, you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention. So you know, I, I think that's just all of us. <laughs> We're both alike, yeah. <laughs> and so tell me this. You, you, you then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid. Well, there's this idea of never stop exploring. And in running, it's very symbolic. You know, I ran, uh, I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old. So that's, you know, 26.2 miles. And I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run. Uh, and then I heard about people running further than that. And I, I couldn't believe it. I heard about a 50-mile foot race. And I thought, that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. i got to try it. <laughs> so I signed up and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50-mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified and I'm thinking, qualified for what? For the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western State's 100-mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop. I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no, the starting gun goes off, and you run as though you're running, you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And, I, and that just was so, it was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And, and then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, 
what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was you know, the most extreme temperatures on Earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. i got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will. And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers. And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly. And it was a hobby for them. It, they were tinkering for them. And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean. I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how, how odd. And I go, no, how American? Because we Americans do this all the time. Uh, well, you know, and ha- let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX, uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as, you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the, the, the largest desert, it's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races? You know, you, get, you might get a, a medal or a trophy. I mean, there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these, but I just love the challenge of, of you know, of, of, of actually bettering yourself. And that's what it comes down to. It's, you know, can you, um, you know, can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that? You know, you're just testing your own limits. You want to know what you can do or can't do in the end, Dean, and your challenges. It's just your own personal challenge. In the end. You don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors, do you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like I've failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do, it's it's more about survive. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles in a 100 mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're you know you're 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 rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it it is really uh, just about survival more than anything else. Well, what led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons. You know, a guy told me he was part of this 50-marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for ten and a half years. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have ten and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in ten and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and, and see the country and, and run while you're out there. See the country at you know eight miles an hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus. The ultra marathon man, and Dean is a writer, a raconteur, and we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Carnassus's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and we return to our conversation with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. And, and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tabula rosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. Talk about a little of that Greek DNA, because we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, It's been said that, you know, that that no other... No other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're, <laughs> we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, Greeks are very independent. Um, even the, you know, the early Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks... You know, the Greeks have said, we can't turn anywhere else. I mean, we're kind of, we've, we've got to help ourselves. They've been very self-reliant is, is one quality that I've seen with Greeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're a, a definitely a minority. I, I think that uh, Greek Americans make up um, something less than, you know, half a percent of the U.S. population. But um, per capita, there are more Greek PhDs than any other class. And it's millionaires as well. There are more Greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is, again, per capita. It's a right. very small small base of people. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm Lebanese, and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And i got to tell you, Dean, not many people. I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, to, to the uh, nature of the American experiment. And the American people, they're really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore them and get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> And that's just how- I've got Lebanese friends. I know what you're talking about. They're they one knuckle. They're funny people. Really great people. Yeah, yeah, we always just say let's just turn something really ugly into something funny. Yeah, um, we life's short. So let's talk back to that 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. You you started in St. Louis on September 17th, 2006 with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November 5th, 2006 with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights, some lowlights, too, Dean, because there have got to be moments, even inside you, where you're going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Plenty of those moments. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for, for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, 
my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them. So she'd basically homeschool them as we're driving around the country for 50 days. Their schools were sending them these lesson plans, emailing them to my mom every Sunday night, and she'd teach the lesson throughout the week. And we all of a sudden became like the a, a, a kind of this traveling um, roadshow where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious, you know, what were the experiences they were having. And then their parents learned about it. So now all their parents were following us. And people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out like we'd have 50, 60 people show up at the starting line of a race in Iowa on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's great. And, and yeah, no, and marathoners were flying from Alaska. A guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood that can sisterhood that came together. Um, so that was the you know the the really uh, poignant and, and beautiful moments. You know, some of the low moments were. I remember running a, a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold. And the next day I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees, running through the desert. And I remember finishing the race thinking, this is marathon 19. I can barely walk. You know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it. Um, and just, you know kept that American spirit, just said, you know, when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon, just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom, and splash some water in your face, you know, okay, that's great, just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time, okay, lace up your shoes, okay, get out the door, <laughs> get to the starting line, okay, just start running, just put one foot in front of the other, uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge, as well as a physical one. Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not anything else but these two simple words, next play, not the play before, and not three plays, five plays, in the next game, or the NCAA finals, just next play. And so many of the kids and, and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating that way well and it's more approachable you're right um it, with running you know it gets very granular i just say you know instead of next play it's next step yep next step next step because you tend to look at the mile markers especially during a marathon you know you might be at mile you might see a mile marker that says mile 18 which means you know you basically have over eight miles to go and you know you might be cramping at that point you know you might just be completely exhausted it's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done? Don't do that. I just say, next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. Next step. Next step. So I really, I can relate to that next play mentality. Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think. How to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip because, my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave, uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was jogging across the country like? And, by the way, what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50-day in 50-state uh, adventure. And what did your family learn? 
Well, you know, I, I learned we're, we're a very diverse country. I mean, you, you, you hear this said all the time, and it's almost cliche, but the regional differences, um, not just with the food and, you know, the dialect, but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Um, but the one, the one, you know, the, the one uniting thing is that we're all free, and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running, and there'd be 40 or 50 people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out, in the, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm, and people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So, we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that, that divide us, right? Be it, you know, our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the God we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality. All of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of, you know, the food we ate, um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side. Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, and this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, you're not talking. And, I'll go with the latter. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll go with the latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people. You're not going to get them in an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. Habib, and we're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultramarathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries, and just all around hurting. Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? <clears throat> you do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple of days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco, there was a marathon in Oakland. 
I got it. I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So you do a lot of, of running. And I also do a lot of cross-training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, when I say cross-training, I mean what's called high-intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury, overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet, my cross-training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and it also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as, possible, you know, as I can and do everything um, with that lens. And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise, uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, uh-huh. and it's just incredible. T- t- tell me this, in mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running. Um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a, I'm a, I'm an introvert, um, you know, just by nature. So running to me, and if you saw where I ran up in the hills um, north of San Francisco, uh, it's, it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species, is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature. And to me, that's, you know, that, that's part of the human experience. And it, was, it makes me feel spiritually enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills. Um, and, you know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yep. You know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours. Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable. And it's these wide open spaces and this peace of mind, and having to fill up your own space. Well, I know, I, you know, it's, it's ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running, because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. 
And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate into this as I'm running, and and then I type up my notes. And you know, even Nietzsche said the only you know the the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. (laughs) And I you know, so I I can completely relate to what you're saying there. Oh, so it's so true. And and talk to us about the diet thing because you had said you know eating really was a a fundamental part uh, of you and your performance. And so talk about that. Uh, that 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 regiment that you go through, and what you eat and what you don't eat, and why? Yeah, so I've I've really refined my diet over the years, and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that you know leave me feeling lethargic and you know kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet, and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food, nothing that that has to go through a machine or be refined. So. Um, I don't eat any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was a Neanderthal man. Um, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's, it's just, you know, they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either, so it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can, I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped in everything I do. This, you know, Jack LaLanne, you must know Jack LaLanne. Sure, yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book, Dean. Um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can. Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey, and it's about the original marathon and the, the Greek runner Phidipides, or Phidipides, that ran the marathon. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well. So, uh, you know, ironically, right now the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history. And I'm not a historian, but I delve very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that to me was fascinating. I think that's something that, that you know, we look at the the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all this in the book. You know, there's one point in time where you say, at the start, I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I'd been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother? You just mentioned him. And that feeling, running and starting to run by the Acropolis. Yes, yeah, so that ancient brother, was. his name was Phidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemodromi, they were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was to, when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, 
the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle. And it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And HBO, not too long ago, put out a, a story about a young Pakistani girl whose family tried to murder her. But they didn't call it murder. They called it honor killing. The idea that if a young woman brings shame to the family, she deserves to die. But as we'll see, this practice has little to do with honor or justice. The name of the documentary, A Girl in the River. And again... It's HBO. The girl from the film is named Saba. She wanted to marry a young man unapproved by her family. So she went off and married him anyway. Her defiance led to her father and uncle teaching her a lesson. After I got married, I did not even spend one day with my husband. We only spoke for an hour or two. I had no alone time with him. I did not spend the night at my in-laws. My relatives came and got me. They said, return home to uphold our family's honor. Then Kayser can come and take you back honorably. After that, they put their hand on the Quran and promised they wouldn't harm me. They had a Toyota and they put me in the car. Because they had sworn on the Quran, I had no fear in my heart. Soon afterwards, my uncle stopped the car and pulled me out. Then he started slapping and beating me. I was conscious during all the beatings and hittings they subjected me to. I remember trembling with fear and begging, but they didn't listen to me. A pistol was pointed at my brain near my temple, and my uncle was clutching my neck. But I was slightly able to tilt my face, which led to the shot missing its target. Then they put me in a bag and threw me in the river so I would go right to the bottom and no one would ever find out what happened. God did not want me to die. They tried to kill me, but I survived. Fate protected me from their bullets. In the future, fate might let me die by their hands. Only God knows these things. I slowly regained consciousness and got out of the river. Then I saw the light of a motorcycle in the distance, and I started following the light and slowly began walking towards it. I came to a gas station, and that's where I went for help. 
Saba's story is the basis of the Oscar-winning film directed by Charmin Obaid Shinoy. It's amazing that Saba survived such a traumatic experience and the chance to share it. Well, that's even more amazing. Here's the director speaking about the importance of this film. I think it was very important to tell the honor killing story from the point of view of a survivor. Unfortunately, 99% of the cases, the women perish, not, unable to tell their stories. Saba survived. Not only did she survive, she fought back. She got out of the river. She found a local fuel station. And the beauty of the story is that in this small town, the social services worked for Saba. The paramedics picked her up. She was taken to a local government hospital, which was run by a fantastic doctor who got his best surgeons to save her life. The local police in charge sent out investigators to find her father and her uncle and eventually did and jailed them. What would motivate a father to attack his own daughter and then to feel entirely justified doing it? The director, Charmin, spoke with the father, and here's what she found. The father and the uncle were defiant. They believed that what they did was right and that they would go back and do it again. Her father said to me, looking straight at me, that, yes, she's my daughter. I wanted to kill her. I provided her with food, shelter. How dare she defy me? How dare she go out without my permission? And uh, I... I'm ready to spend my entire life in jail because this is something that I've done for my honor, the honor of my family. She has shamed us. He said something like, I used to feed her three times a day. You know, you feed animals three times a day as well. He didn't look at her as another human being. At that point, I chose not to argue with him because I was extremely angry because these men get away with saying that this has something to do with religion when it absolutely has nothing to do with religion. You know, I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Muslim faith is that when a woman is getting married, a cleric has to ask her three times if she agrees to that marriage. If she hesitates even once, he is not to marry her off. So how can that religion condone honor killings? Indeed, this is not about religion. It was about hurt pride. Saba's response to what happened to her was to fight back. But this would prove to be an unfair fight. Well, Saba was very determined to fight the case. She wanted to make examples of her father and her uncle. There is a line in the film where she says that, you know, I want them to be shot in public so that no other man, no other father, no other uncle, no other brother does this to a woman in his family. And when I first met her, she had this fire in her. And she had a wonderful pro bono lawyer. They went to court. They began the proceedings. But the law did not support her. In Pakistan, in cases of honor killings, uh, the way it works, unfortunately, is that if a father kills his daughter, his wife can forgive him. If a brother kills a sister, the parents can forgive. In this case, because Saba survived, the community members, the neighborhood, they said that they would ostracize uh, the in-laws if she did not forgive. This film forced the conversation forward in Pakistan because it showed the government and public a real-life victim that had survived. There was now a face to this ongoing tragedy. They could no longer turn a blind eye. The film uh, has created quite a stir in Pakistan. The prime minister came out and said that he wanted to work on the issue of honor killings. And he has since then met with me. He has uh, spoken to members of his political party. They are going to be working to 
plug the loopholes in the law, making sure that there is no forgiveness in cases of honor killings. You know, I think that the prime minister was inspired to come out and speak about this issue, saying that there is no place for honor killings in Islam and that we must make that clear to everybody. If this law passes, honor killings will be a crime against the state, not against an individual, which means that the state has to prosecute and you cannot forgive. A lot of things can go wrong, but if in a town three or four people go to jail for it, the fifth person will think twice before shooting somebody in his family. In the beginning of her trial, Saba was not alone. Her pro bono lawyer worked very hard to help her seek justice. Honor killing under the Pakistani law should be treated as a murder, and the case should be prosecuted in the court of law as any murder case. But what happens is that in most cases, the near relatives who are allowed under law can forgive the accused. So for example, if father kills his daughter, the rest of the family members forgive him. The killers in honor killing cases are allowed to be acquitted. And that is also one reason why honor killings are rising because people get to know that if they kill their daughters, their sisters, they may still go scot-free. This is not just Sabah's cause, it's the society's cause. It's a question of public policy whether in such cases compromise or forgiveness should be allowed to happen or not. But seeking justice is a long-drawn process and women are at a great social and institutional disadvantage. Women in Pakistani society live as second-rate citizens, or perhaps even worse. Saba's lawyers went to great lengths to help her, even meeting with the elders of the community to try and reason with them. But social pressure plays a very powerful role there. And while Saba did want to seek justice, sometimes the corruption, well, it's just rooted too deeply. I can understand why she's inclined to reach a compromise. Our justice system is not strong enough to provide her security. Let's assume the accused are convicted and sentenced to five years of imprisonment. And they come out. And then they again try to kill her. Who is going to protect her? And one of the accused is her own father. And he's the only breadwinner of the family. So it makes worldly sense to forgive him. When the law allows for this kind of settlement, the courts in such instances have become mere uh, post offices. They just record the statement of the victim. This is something which strengthens male superiority. Then came the day where Saba had to choose whether or not to forgive her uncle and father. At first, I was sitting outside and was feeling sick. Then the judge greeted me and said, Come forward. Then he said, Child, do you wish to forgive them? Do we have your permission? I said yes. The Pakistani justice system may be broken, but Saba's will certainly isn't. If the elders hadn't pressured me, I would have never forgiven them. I said to myself, the longer they stay in prison, the better for everyone. I forgave them for society's sake. I listened to my family and forgave them. But in my heart, they are never forgiven. 
Let's end with some of Saba's final thoughts. Kesar and I will have a baby soon. I hope it is a girl so she can be brave. I hope she can do good things and be educated. I hope she can work if she wants to. She should do whatever her heart desires. God is the one who decides. But I would like to have a girl. On October 6, 2016, Pakistan passed a new law. From then on, perpetrators of so-called honor killings would be prosecuted by the state and they could no longer walk free if simply pardoned by the victim's family. Saba's bravery on display. This remarkable film, this remarkable story by HBO, A Girl in the River. stories and every once in a while we like to play John Denver songs I love John Denver and Jesse's just shaking his head but this is Greg's segment yes Greg this is Greg's segment and by the way the thing about music that's so great is it brings people together and it separates people <laughs> how could this song ever separate anybody well it did there are some people who once you play John Denver they have to go into a laboratory oh, I just don't it's not me I actually love John Denver it's and great. Metallica so go figure put <laughs> yeah. me in a very unique category but I like everything and so Greg stumbled upon a story well that we just had to do Greg tell us a little bit about this young lady uh, that we're about to report on yeah her name is Kaylee and her she wrote a, a blog And it kept popping up on my social network Facebook page. And after a while, you know, I'm scrolling down and a certain amount of times you see it where you're thinking, this must be a good piece because I keep seeing it on different people's feed, sharing it. So I'm like, fine, I'll click on it. And I read it and I was blown away. It's a piece um, that's very unique in that uh, it's about adoption, but it's atypical and you're going to see why. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Kaylee. I have unruly red hair, brownish eyes. People say, did you know your eyes match your hair? And freckles. I feel most alive when I'm outdoors or making something with my hands. I describe things in my head when I'm alone, thinking of how I'd write them if someone were to ask. I've always been partial to kittens in rainy days. I thrive on seasons, although my three years of living in California were some of my favorite years so far. Also, I'm adopted. I've pretty much always been adopted. I took my first breath and my birth mother held me. 
She had already chosen some people for me to call mommy and daddy. I waited in a foster home for a couple of months and then I was adopted. I remember reading books about adopted kids growing up. I remember how they would find out. It was always at a birthday party or in an argument. Someone would carefully plan how to break the news or they'd blurt it out in a spot of anger. Books made adoption seem like a secret. Not the good kind of secret, like what you bought your dad for Christmas, but the kind of secret that hurts a little. The kind nobody really wanted to tell you and that they thought you should probably know anyway. The kind that makes your life spiral out of control, your identity suddenly in crisis. That's not my story. My parents were proud. Being adopted was a special gift. My parents would tell me the story of how they got me every night before bed. I loved hearing it. I loved hearing how they prayed and prayed for a baby, how God found the perfect woman to carry their baby for them, and how the lady whose tummy I was in so generously and lovingly gave me to them. In this story, I was not someone to be ashamed of that nobody wanted, I was someone to be proud of that was cherished and plucked by the hand of God himself to be placed in the most perfect family. In my mind, everyone was adopted. I remember being at a friend's house and not being able to sleep. Her mom snuggled me and offered to tell me a story. What does your mom tell you when you can't sleep, she asked. She tells me the story of how she got me. How did you get your kids? I remember her hesitating and chuckling, asking what my mom tells. I told her of my adoption, and I'm sure she sighed a sigh of relief, knowing she didn't have to have that talk with me. So I say this to the mama who is pregnant, the mama who feels so lost and in over her head, not knowing if she can do this, or if she wants to, or if this little life should end. Adoption is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is one of the most selfless and loving things you can do for that baby in your womb. There is a man and woman out there waiting for a call. A call that they can finally have a baby. When my dad found out my mom had gone out to get Christmas presents, they had literally waited by the phone and checked messages for months and months, hoping for news of a baby. Dad wrote down all the information, hung a special card on the tree, and waited. My mom came home, and I just remember that picture they always show me. It's a picture of her looking at this card, her hand over her mouth, and complete and utter joy, disbelief, and excitement flooding her face. That picture alone makes me feel so completely loved and wanted. Imagine my life with them, full of love, full. They fostered a love for my birth mother inside of me as well. So mama, consider this. Maybe this baby is meant to be yours. To be held and snuggled. To listen to your comforting voice and grow up in your home. But don't forget, adoption is beautiful and special and maybe someone has been praying that the Lord would send them a babe. Either way, your baby has a life worth living. worth every second.
Yeah, and that wasn't ordinary, Greg, anything but. You also comment here that you, you dug up some Facebook responses and comments, which are always interesting. This was one quote, I did not give up anything. In fact, I did not give up when I chose adoption. I never gave up. I kept going. Our decision was not about giving up anything, but about giving everything. Life, love, and hope. And Lindsay Kruger, who works at Adoption Option, a child placement agency, said a misconception in her field is that a child is placed in adoption because the birth mother didn't care or just gave up or rejected their child. She said this couldn't be further from the truth. They want the best life possible for their children and feel that at this time they cannot provide that. Through the pain and loss that these birth moms go through, it is beautiful to see the immense love they have for their child, Kruger says. And Greg, thanks for this piece on Kaylee's life, and thank you, Kaylee, for doing it. And we love doing these adoption stories. They just, well, it's love of a stranger incarnate. This is Our American Stories. Just let your love This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about love, death, sports, and of course, the thing we do most in our lives, work. And occasionally we bring you public policy stories, but only when it hits the pavement. That is, only when it affects you, the listener. And they're usually brought to us by our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take a listen to his great piece on why it cost, well, almost $1,400 for an hour or two of nursery care at the hospital and why he wasn't told and what it was like to go and figure out what that bill was like. It's both funny, it's both aggravating, and in the end, it's a lesson in pricing, transparency, and everything's wrong, and everything that's wrong with our health care system. And now, Alex brings us this field report. In Michigan, any employee who makes over $100,000 within a school system, it gets reported. It has to be reported on the school's website. They don't necessarily have to name the employee, um, but they do have to report it somewhere what the position is. You're listening to Jared Skorup, a policy analyst at Michigan's free market think tank, the Mackinac Center. And so somebody in Lansing had tipped us off because they noticed that somebody in the district was making over $200,000, and they were curious about it. And so we dug into it, and what we found was that it was the head of the state's uh, public employee union, the Michigan Education Association. The MEA, the state's largest teachers' union. The Mackinac Center discovers this, and they're puzzled. Why is the prominent, well-known head of a private organization, just like the CEO of Goldman Sachs, listed as an employee of a public school system? a taxpayer-supported system, and making more money than any other employee, including its head, the superintendent. $20,000 more. This is the Steve Cook story. So Steve Cook, the head of the MEA, was a paraprofessional. 
a teacher's assistant at the Lansing School District. He was making an hourly wage when he left in 1991. He was making somewhere around $25,000 a year. He left to become the treasurer of the MEA and later ascended to the presidency. And so at the time, his pension would have been, you know, maybe $10,000 or so once he retired. Should have been. For his time as a paraprofessional. What we discovered in digging through this was that the school, he was technically employed by the school district, but he was paid by the union. And what the union was doing was it was funneling money through the school district to pay his salary. And his pension. That sounds really weird to people. Why, why would that happen? It is really weird. My boss at our private company doesn't pay the local school district around here the amount of my salary and pension, which, by the way, I don't have. Only 35% of private employees do. But they can then pay me. I had never even heard of such an arrangement before this story. What's even the point of doing this whole rigmarole? The reason was to spike his pension benefits. From a $10,000 a year retirement benefit from his work as a paraprofessional to over $100,000 a year for as many years as he lives. A public employee's pension is based upon the number of years they've been on the payroll and the amount they were paid in their final three to five years. So by remaining on the public payroll, despite doing no work for the public, Steve Cook could balloon his number of years, adding 27 years without work, and balloon the all-important factor of his salary in his final years. From a pension based off of a salary between 16 to 34000 when Steve Cook actually worked for the school district, to a $201,000 one when he didn't. The long story short is he never, you know, he made $25,000 a year. That would have been about, that's about the salary of somebody who's a paraprofessional working hourly in Lansing schools. So he's going to make a pension four times as large as he ever made as a salary. Um, And there's no other way to say it. The fact that Steve Cook put together this complicated scheme at all certainly means one thing, that the taxpayer-supported pension plan for public school employees was far more generous than what he could get with the MEA's private plan for the private employees who run the teachers' union, a private pension fund that's several hundred million dollars in debt. It's meant that the union has had to go to members and hike their dues payments. Um, And so this this program is one way for them to avoid some of the costs um, that's eating into their budget. By shifting Steve Cook's pension over to the public pension fund, The union was shifting over their own private problems, their own debt, over to taxpayers and letting it become everyone's problem. And sure, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that too? Just throwing over our personal debt to taxpayers. Here you go, it's yours. But then you'd also have to live with yourself, which could be hard. Besides union executives, no one else in the private sector could get away with this. CEO of Coca-Cola, we would be outraged if he started filtering his money, his $5 million salary through a school district in order to get hundreds of millions of dollars worth of a pension. We'd be outraged by that because we would understand he works for Coca-Cola. That's a private company. He should not be spiking the pension. 
And 99.9% of public employees couldn't pull this off either. Steve Cook could only do this because he had leverage. Leverage that comes from his power to threaten a teacher strike, leaving children without instruction, as happened in Chicago in 2012. The superintendent in Lansing, who uh, he agreed to this deal in the early 90s, there was a former superintendent, and what he thought was what sometimes happens is a employee will leave for a couple of years and they do what's called an educator on loan. And sometimes it's they'll go teach at a community college or they'll go to another district for a couple of years. And so they'll enter an agreement basically to say, okay, this is a way so that we keep your, you keep your job here and you're able to come back. And the superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. Richard Halleck, that former superintendent who agreed to loan Steve Cook, said about it, You want a positive relationship with the MEA. You pick the hill to die on. We were going to be cooperative. Now that's leverage, folks. When a union, a private organization, gets you, a taxpayer representative, to do something that you may not want to do because you fear them. It wasn't the hill to die on. The superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. And here we are, 25 years later, and he's still taking advantage of the same program. Can you be called an educator on loan if you never intend to go back? And that's why the superintendent who agreed to this um, understands that it is not how the program is supposed to work and, and in fact really just a scam on, on taxpayers and on the pension system. Um, and it should outrage school employees. I and mean, we have a pension system, $27 billion in debt. And yet here we do. We have enough money, apparently, for union executives to to be able to spike uh, their pension and, and, and make way more money than they ever made as school employees. Taxpayers may be forced to bail out the bankrupt pension system and school employees could have their pensions reduced. Lakeisha Allen is one of those school employees. Like Steve Cook, she's on the Lansing Public School System's payroll. But unlike him, she actually does work for the schools. She's a secretary, making $23,000 a year, and is forced to pay 456 of that to a union that she doesn't want to be a member of, and whose head prioritizes his pension over hers. Lakeisha told the Mackinac Center's watchdog publication, Michigan Capital Confidential, quote, It terrifies me, and if others knew what was going on, I'm sure they would be frightened too. Secretaries are severely underpaid. We, the working class, are the ones who are going to suffer behind the Steve Cooks of the world in the school district for allowing this to happen. And after the break, I'll bring you my investigation of Steve Cook's questionable compensation scheme, how it came to be, and I'll talk to those with responsibility for it. This is Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex. When we come back, more of the story of Steve Cook. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's investigation of Steve Cook, who was a teaching assistant at the Lansing schools until the unions asked that he be loaned out to them in 1991, while still technically being employed by the school district, even all these years later. This is one strange arrangement, folks, but one that allows Steve Cook, a private union employee, to spike his public pension to over $100,000 a year. That's right, $100,000 a year to not work. And at a time when taxpayers and school employees who actually work at the schools are on the hook for a pension fund debt that amounts to $27 billion. Just imagine the CEO of Ford doing this. We'd never hear the end of it. But this top union boss has been allowed to skate by. Let's now go to Alex's investigation where he tries to talk with the people who've got responsibility for this. I tried beginning my investigation with the guy who seems to be holding all the cards in this story, Steve Cook. So I called the MEA spokesman David Krim to see if we can set up an interview with Steve. He told me he'd get back to me. I called back nine days later to follow up, but never heard back. Now 29 days later, I followed up again. This time, though, I got some clarity. Steve Cook turns out not to be interested. And I am sure he's not, but everyone else is, as you'll hear about more later. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running, I'm running, I'm passing. So you all better get right at this time, because it might be no next time, y'all. So I next tried to speak with the head of the Lansing Public Schools, Yvonne Kamal Kanul, who seemingly is maintaining this arrangement with Mr. Cook. I wanted to ask her why. And they passed me along to her spokesman, Bob Colt. I follow up with Bob several times more, and he finally tells me that Superintendent Yvonne Kamal Kanul passed on an interview. I'm now starting to feel like this is some dirty family secret that no one wants to talk about. What is our situation, Dad? So I try a new group of folks, the school district board members. They also got responsibility in this. Those pesty taxpayers elected them to represent their interests. And the first board member I got a hold of was a lovely Colombian-American named Amy Hodgen. And my accent is not horrible? No, your accent's great. You know, with age... I used to have a beautiful, I learned English almost perfectly, but then I had a cerebral hemorrhage and I had to learn to talk. And I, my, I learned to talk with an accent again, it was so depressing. Amy told me that she wasn't allowed to speak with me. The superintendent, the same one who wouldn't agree to an interview, told the board members that only she and the board president could do interviews about this issue and any other issue, as if Amy and the other elected board members don't have a right to speak. We should be able to not only discuss it as a board, but we should be able to discuss it with parents too. The superintendent seems to have forgotten. School board members don't work for her. They work for the taxpayers who elected them. But Amy asked me to try to follow the rules and first speak with the board president, Peter Spatafor, and that if he wouldn't speak to me, she would, in violation 
of the superintendent's order. So I called Peter, and once again, this person that I call with some level of responsibility for this Steve Cook arrangement passed. With unanswered questions, I went back to Amy to see what she knew about Steve Cook's arrangement. There have been articles from the press, uh, but it's, it's a subject that has not been, I mean, discussed by the board. Why haven't they discussed this? Do they think they can't? I mean, they're the school board. They're the ones taxpayers put in charge. They're the employer, right? Honestly, I have no idea. At this point, what were the terms? I think it's time that we we should be able to discuss it and give the right answers to whoever asked us. Public schools are criticized constantly. And and so for board members and for superintendents, it's frustrating that everything you read is negative. And for Pete's sake, there's got to be something positive that we're doing. Uh, we have excellent teachers. We have programs, especially in Lansing, that you don't have in the rest of the state. We have Spanish immersion. We have Chinese immersion. We have Montessori. We have incredible programs. And yet, nobody seems to write and say, oh, my God, my kid is going to that class. My kid has the most fantastic teacher. It's always the negative. Amy's right. It's Steve Cook's determined to continue his arrangement and allow all this negative attention to keep coming at the school district. It is a problem. Uh, it is written on, on social media at least once a week by, by a parent. So it's not, it's not like it's not being discussed out there by parents. And again, it's sad. It's, it's these little things, or big, they're big things for parents, which in turn reflect on us, and it's something that we have nothing to do with it and has nothing to do with the education of the kid. Even if the school board refuses to meet about this issue, why hasn't the school district at least exercised their right to put an end to Steve Cook's contract? Well, they say it's complicated. Michigan Capital Confidential received a copy of Steve Cook's actual agreement in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. And there's three words in it that the school district believes prohibits them from ending the contract. Those three words shall be renewed, as in shall be renewed in perpetuity. So when the contract was up for renewal at the end of the first three years, the superintendent at that time, Richard Halleck, approached Steve Cook about changing the three words to may be renewed. He refused. That one teeny word, shall, Halleck said, made us kind of trapped. Legally. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 It would be up to Mr. Cook on when to end his contract. And only him. How is this even possible? Have you ever heard of a contract where the employee single-handedly decides 
Now, it would sure be wonderful to tell my boss, now you're going to pay me $200,000 a year, and I get to decide when this all ends. Never. And when I finally do decide to retire, if I ever do, I get a $100,000 pension a year until I die. What kind of world is this? This is Our American Stories, and great job, Alex. And when we come back, you're going to hear the tail end of this story. By the way, I am a lawyer, and contracts are generally, almost always, written for a specific period of time or give parties ways to terminate an agreement. And by the way, some states, Illinois and California, for example, the courts have ruled that perpetual contracts are simply unenforceable. When we come back, Steve Cook, the final chapter, and then we'll talk... Well, we'll talk to the man who we've been talking to throughout this interview, Jarrett Skorup, after these messages. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we're back with the final portion of Alex's investigation of Steve Cook, the head of the Michigan's largest teachers union, the Michigan Education Association, who hasn't done work as an assistant teacher for the Lansing Public School District since 1991, but has technically remained as an employee there, allowing him to wildly spike his pension benefit from what it should be around $10,000 a year to over $100,000 a year until he dies. And Alex has been speaking with, or at least has tried to speak with, the folks who have responsibility for Steve Cook's immoral compensation scheme, such as Steve Cook himself, the superintendent, and the school board members. The folks who could have done something about it, who could have ended it, but haven't. And Alex had one more person that he wanted to speak with. Let's take a listen. The last person I thought I'd speak to is that former superintendent we've mentioned, Richard Halleck, who was there in 1993 and signed the original contract to loan Steve Cook to the Michigan Education Association. I really don't blame him for trying to protect himself and his family, you know, with a a way to support his, you know, livelihood. And it was our mistake, and he's taken advantage of it. Do you think leaders, though, in any way have a higher responsibility than just you know following the law you know what's what's right moral, well, the, morally and I, I understand the desire to you know support well, your family. Any, of, any of these jobs are politically hazardous <laughs> let me tell you any job is politically hazardous you can be on top of the mountain one day and the next day you're you got a problem 
and superintendents are very aware of that, obviously. Our profession's very hazardous, you know, for stability with politics with boards. And so looking at it from that perspective, I still don't fault him for that. I would doubt if he would ever come back now. He's been so successful, you know, at what he's doing. Successful as in losing 20% of your members in 2015? 20% in a single year? Why would he want to come back to Lansing as a para-pro when he makes more money than most superintendents make? Wouldn't make sense. Okay, how about from, you know, a, a taxpayer's perspective, you know, he's working for a private um, organization, you know, say he was similarly working for, you know, Goldman Sachs and for, for the head of Goldman Sachs to benefit from the public system. And I, I understand but, the MEA is paying, paying, paying his pension, but when, when the... Not, when, not, the la, it's not costing the Lansing schools anything. But it it, it, it... it didn't then and it doesn't now. It doesn't in, in the sense, though, that the pension funds are underfunded, yeah. so taxpayers are having to fund well, that you can put a you can put a negative twist to anything. <laughs> you also can put a positive twist to anything, as Mr. Halleck was trying to do with Steve Cook's arrangement. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex. And boy, there's so much more we could talk about, but our lawyers, well, they wouldn't let us. And I'll just leave it at that. But my goodness, what a story. And by the way, what's happening around this country, there are stories like Steve Cook's elsewhere, maybe not this lifetime contract, but this public pension problem. Oh my goodness, this is just one little story that digs underneath the bigger, deeper problem. And now it's time to bring on Jarrett Skorup. And Jarrett works as a policy analyst at the Mackinac Center, Michigan's premier free market think tank. And Jarrett, what do you think about what you heard? And, and contextualize it for our audience, because this is one story. But as you well know, it's a part of a larger narrative about public pension funds and unions. Yeah, this is a, a super important issue. And uh, one the the ancillary talk about pensions and unions and release time and all those things, I think those make the news. And the key with this one is it's been going on for decades and no one ever heard about it. It was, it was pretty clearly, it was a secret arrangement. It was unknown by the general public. It was unknown by legislators. And yet this is being funded by taxpayers. It's, it goes to the state pension fund that's underfunded by billions of dollars and everyone's picking up the tab uh, because of this type of arrangement, which, by the way, isn't unique just to uh, Mr. Cook, but each of the last of the most recent uh, MEA presidents, as well as a whole variety of their current employees, everybody has this type of arrangement going on. And let me tell you, uh, the, the word shall in a contract, look, I'm a lawyer, and I think you fight this, you win it in most courts over time. There's an unconscionability clause in the UCC, and that's the Uniform Commercial Code, which governs contracts in most of the country. I mean, you would just litigate this, you would think. You're actually trying to do something in the legislative uh, area. Talk about what you're trying to do at Mackinac to stop this from happening again in the state of Michigan. And maybe folks listening around the country can ask their state legislators to do the same. Yeah, we so after we broke this story, we had a state a state senator who is very interested in this issue on the pension spiking side and union release side and just the general way of how taxpayers 
pay for union employees who aren't working for them. They're, they're out working for a private union, often on political issues. Um, so a senator named Marty Nolenberg, um, who's still in the Senate now, he had sponsored a couple of bills that would uh, get rid of these arrangements. And so that worked its way through the process um, over about a year and a half as we were investigating this and reporting on it. And it got through our Senate, and it got all the way through to a final vote in our state house, and they couldn't quite uh, get the vote done in the lame duck at the end of last year. And so we fully expect that will be another issue. That issue will come right back up this year. Um, it was disappointing that you know a legislature here in Michigan, which is totally controlled by Republicans, couldn't muster up the votes to end something like this. Um, but we expect that it will be back. And how systemic do you think this Steve Cook story is? Huge in Michigan and and across the nation. So union release time and this type of pension spiking arrangements, which are done with the knowledge of uh, union leadership using uh, either school board members or other local board members that they know, it happens all across the nation. It happens at the federal level. Um, So it's a really big deal. Um, Here in Michigan, what we started investigating was how how many employees is this happening with, and what you find is that these types of arrangements are happening for uh, at least the past three MEA presidents going back 30 years, um, as well as all of their current executive leadership. So all of the leaders in the union are technically employed by, this, uh, by local school districts, even though the reality is they aren't doing any work for them. And many of the other executives in the union, their unit-served directors, they're all they're all getting a lot of this type of release time and just arrangements where the union is running their, their salary through a local school district simply in order to benefit themselves with a higher pension picked up by state taxpayers. And in the end, the, the total amount, I mean, I'm adding it up in my head. If it's 1991 and that's a lot of money, that's a lot of teacher's salaries. That's a lot of well, lunches for kids. Uh, that's all kinds of things. Uh, has this been really, I mean, did the, does the public really know this in the state of Michigan? If I say the word Steve Cook now, do people know? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, we've certainly done our best to publicize a story and, and written articles on it, but the, the union has tried to make it seem that this is a totally normal thing, that, it's, that, that it has a very minimal cost to taxpayers, that it doesn't really matter. Um, and so, you know, like all things, you know, you do your best to get your message out for people. When people do hear about it, union members on the ground, they're totally outraged. Um, they don't get that type of special arrangement, and they're not real happy that uh, the union bosses are able to. No, indeed. And it's happening in Illinois, too, isn't it? It's happening in Illinois. It's happening in Arizona. It's happening in California, New York. Uh, most states have it. A lot of the bigger states, particularly the ones uh, where union power is pretty strong, those are the ones where it's happening the most. Yeah, and there's just no recourse. There's no recourse. It sounds like, look, Alex spent a month on this piece. He couldn't get anybody to talk except the retired superintendent who sounded just like, well, you know, what can I do? Mistakes were made. And that's it. I mean, he basically said mistakes were made. My bad. Oh, the taxpayers, you pick up the tab. That's crazy. Yeah, the, the key, the underline of all this is really just the role of public sector unions in the government. So in the private sector, if you know, when Ford is unionized, you have a you have a it's a private company. The union doesn't want to drive the company out of business. So they have a, a reason to negotiate and, and there's some pushback back and forth. In the public sector, very often the unions control the local school boards, they control the uh, 
any of the local officials that oversee their contracts. And so you get a lot of working together. Um, and of course, then the taxpayers who aren't at the table, they don't have their seat there. They're the ones that are paying for these types of arrangements. That's really the largest issue out of all this from my standpoint. Yeah, I mean, the union can only go so far because if Ford goes bankrupt, there goes the union pension. And that's not the case with the state or with the city or with the county. And this is the real problem. They kick the debt can down the road to future generations. And I try and tell every 20-year-old I meet, hey, did you know you have a debt load? And they go, yeah, my student loans. I go, oh, that's (laughs) just the beginning. You have no idea. Well, thanks so much for all that you do, Jarrett. And that's Jarrett Skorup. And he works over at the Mackinac Center. And we love talking to our state think tanks. And they are one of the best if not the best. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and great work to you, Alex. And periodically, again, we like to do these public policy stories where they affect you, the taxpayer, where the policy hits the pavement. Again, this is Our American Stories, and thanks to the Mackinac Center. And thanks again to Alex. Alex.